Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. And this is your Friday follow-up. In this week's episode, we heard Jim Clemente break down our crime scene. Jim was able to take what seemed like a very chaotic scene and break it down to a logical scenario that seems to make sense. Jim believes that Kia was being stalked, that there's a high probability that it was her stalker who eventually killed her. He believes this was a premeditated attack, but that the motive was probably not murder. He thinks that the crime scene started in one location and ended in another and that our most likely offender or offenders were young and criminally inexperienced. He found the idea that Jesse would be the offender in this crime to be improbable, and that of all the leads that we have to this point, that Judy Gonzalez and Jesse James Swindell's story about the white Camaro does seem to fit with all of the evidence. As expected, this episode has created a lot of buzz, so let's hear what you have to say about Jim Clemente's real crime profile. Okay, Bob, before we get started, there's been a lot of talk on social media about Kirby and maybe him being a potential suspect in this case. What are your thoughts on Kirby to sort of settle all this? Yeah, I've seen several comments on the fan page and on the Truth and Justice page, as well as on Twitter, wondering if I consider Kiao's son Kirby a suspect. The answer to that question is no, I do not consider Kirby a suspect at this point. And it's not that I haven't looked into Kirby or that I haven't considered the possibility but I just don't think that a family member killing Kiao fits this crime scene. To begin with, if it was a family member, say Kenneth or Kirby, that wanted to kill Kiao, there are so many other better ways to do it. One of the key things we're looking at when we're profiling a crime scene is access. Remember I said a couple of episodes ago that what we're trying to figure out when we're trying to determine who the offender might be is why did they choose that particular person at that particular time at that particular place? because that has to do with access to the victim. Kirby had access to his mother nearly 24 hours a day, so if he had made a premeditated plan in his mind to kill his mother, he could have done it at any time 
in any place. Think about the location where Kia was killed. It's broad daylight in a wide open field where several houses had a direct view of the crime scene. Also consider that Kirby is someone who is known to the people on this block. So if he killed her there and then went running home, he would be seen by several people. The only way that I could consider that Kirby would have been involved in this would have been if he was out on a walk with his mom and this happened suddenly. But we have no evidence whatsoever that Kirby ever goes for walks with his mother. And also, he would have had to have been on the walk carrying a knife, again indicating premeditation. But all in all, in my opinion, this crime scene does not indicate a personal attack, and the logistics of where and how it went down do not fit with a family member, in my opinion. Okay, thanks for covering that, Bob. Moving right into Facebook, listener Paul Day posts to us, Quick question, who ID'd Kiao at the murder scene? Was she carrying a wallet or ID? We know police had her ID before informing her husband and son, so I was wondering how this happened. Thanks for any useful thoughts. Kia was actually ID'd by the high school principal, although it sounds like he got to the scene after her body had been removed, so I'm not sure exactly how that went down, but in Reuters' investigative notes, it shows that he was on the scene that morning. He mentioned that he knew Kia walked around the school every morning around that time, so my assumption is that it wasn't a direct ID, but that it was more of a suggestion. There was an Asian woman at 7.30 in the morning who was walking and who was killed. I think that the principal told police that it was likely Kiao Go. And then ultimately, it ended up being Kenneth who actually ID'd Kiao. Okay. Also, listener L posts, could it be possible that Kiao's keys were what the killer or killers were after? Did she have keys for the school on her key ring? Great episode and can't wait for next week. Thanks. At this point, we can't rule that out, although there were no reports after this of the school being broken into or the house being broken into or any of Kenneth and Kiao's cars being broken into or taken. But since we don't know exactly what keys were on that ring, we have no way of knowing if that was the motive. But personally, I think that was unlikely because if someone was attacking Kiao for those keys, it doesn't appear that they did anything with them. Furthermore, someone would have had to really have been studying Kiao's behaviors to know that the white handkerchief that she had in her hand was actually her keys. All right, and longtime listener Kristen Peterson tweets, Are Kiao's clothes still in evidence? At this point, I don't have an inventory to know exactly what is or is not in evidence, but the answer to that is that they should be, because the forensic examiner's testimony indicated that he did in fact have Kiao's clothes and later in Don Watts' investigative notes, he inspected the clothes. So they should still be in testimony, but I don't have an inventory to know for sure whether or not they are. All right, we've got an email here from Jan Whitaker. She writes, I don't want to get too stereotyping here, but tiger mothers are a real thing in Asian cultures. How long had Kia lived in the United States? Was she engaged in any way with the Thai community in the area? Now, I'd never heard this term before, tiger mother. So I went ahead and looked it up, and this is what Wikipedia has to say. Tiger mother is a term which refers to a strict or demanding mother who pushes her children to be successful academically by attaining high levels of scholastic and academic achievement, using methods regarded as typical of child rearing in East Asia, South Asia, and Southeast Asia to the detriment of the child's social, physical, psychological, and emotional well-being. The term is coined by Yale Law Professor Amy Chua in her memoir Battle for Him of the Tiger Mother. So, in a nutshell... Crazy mom. <laughs> yeah, well said. Okay, I've never actually heard that term before, but to answer Jan's question, based on all the information I've been able to gather, Kiao doesn't seem to have any other Thai friends. I've spoken with a couple of people who worked with Kiao at the school to this point, and it seems like none of the people she was close with were Asian. 
and answer Jan's other question, Kiel had been living in the United States for 16 years at this point. And I assume that the point of the question is kind of getting to, could Kirby have a motive if his mom was pushing him too far too hard? And like I said in a previous answer, I don't think that Kirby's a suspect to begin with, and I at least have no evidence that Kiel was a tiger mother. Moving back to Facebook, Beth Zelmer King posts, We know Kiao's husband was at work at the time of her murder, but did that deter police from investigating him further? Friends say that they had a great relationship, but we all know that things can be completely different behind closed doors. I'm also curious to know if he moved on quickly after Kiao's death. I wouldn't take murder for hire off the table. Thoughts? This is something that I can't be any more clear on. I will be honest, when I first started looking at this case, my initial thoughts were the husband. The knife in Kiao's hand just really threw me a loop before I had all the rest of this evidence. But the answer to your question as far as Kenneth moving on, he never moved on. I had an email exchange with one of Kiao's close friends just a couple of days ago, and she told me that Kenneth was absolutely devastated by Kiao's death and he never got over it. He never remarried, and he never moved out of that house. At trial, Kenneth was asked if he remarried, and his response was that Kiao would always be his wife, and he will never remarry. And he never did until the day he died. This same close friend that I spoke with, who was very close friends with both Kiao and Kenneth, told me that they didn't just have a good or decent relationship, that they had an exceptional relationship, and that they were extremely close and both madly in love with each other. So I can't speak as to why the police looked away from Kenneth if it was because of his alibi, but I don't think there is any chance whatsoever that Kenneth Gove had anything to do with his wife's death. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Does anyone else think that the time of day that this crime was committed is interesting? If this had been late at night, it would have made more sense. Most violent crimes for people below and above the age of 18 occur later in the day, afternoon or evening mainly. Who commits a murder like that at 7 a.m.? That's a really good point, and it's actually one of the biggest clues we have in this case, because you're exactly right. These types of violent crimes don't typically occur at 7.30 in the morning. But it goes back to what I was saying earlier. When we create a profile of a crime scene trying to determine who the offender might be, again, we want to know... Why was this particular victim chosen at this particular place at this particular time? The time in this instance, I believe, tells us a lot. I think that it greatly lowers the probability of this being some kind of gang-related activity or even some random act of violence. What the time in this case tells us is that that time was chosen for a reason, and most likely that reason was based on Kiao's routine. So that tells us, and again, these are just probabilities, this isn't fact, it's just a probability, 
but that a likely scenario is that someone intentionally targeted Kiao and found that the best way to get a hold of Kiao would have been in those early morning hours while she was walking alone. That also helps us narrow down the location of the crime. Remember that both myself and Jim Clemente don't think that the crime ended where it started. So if we put ourselves in the mindset of someone who was targeting Kiao for some particular reason, which again, I don't believe was murder. I do not think that was the intention at all. They know her routine. They know where she walks. They know what time she walks. And when you go out to that school and walk around that block, there is literally only one place that is secluded enough where you could grab someone and not be seen. And it is not where her body was found. It is just to the east of the intersection of Grady Lane and Apache, which, by the way, also happens to be the exact location where Jesse James Wendell and Judy Gonzalez said that they saw a woman being dragged into a car. In that exact location. Steve Cook posts, The one thing that surprised me about this episode was that neither Bob nor Jim ever raised the possibility, even if only to discard it, that Kiel's killer could have been a woman. Perhaps a co-worker had a grudge against her for some reason. Bob, would you mind discussing if a female could have been the killer? Well, we certainly can't rule out completely the possibility of a female being the attacker. But there is a reason why we, or I'll say me, I can't speak for Jim, but there is a reason why I don't think it's very likely that we're looking at a female offender here. And the reason for that is motive. What female would have a motive to kill Kiao? Again, keep in mind that both Jim and I agree that neither of us think that murder was the intention of this attack. So considering the intention was not to murder Kiao, and robbery was not a motive because all of her jewelry was left on her, then why would someone attack her? Then we couple that with the fact that we have reports of someone following her, a male, and the probabilities of someone who feels they're being stalked and then later being killed by the person who is actually stalking them. My personal opinion is that the motive behind this crime was sexual. My personal opinion is that Kia was attacked in an attempt to abduct her for a sexual assault. I think that Kia got away and the attack ended in murder because she was carrying that knife for protection. That's what made the plan go wrong. So I certainly am not discounting the idea that it could have been a female, but in my mind, I think it's extremely unlikely. I think the motive in this attack was sexual assault. Regarding Kiao wearing the corset, there was a lot of buzz about why. There were people saying it is a common technique used in Asia for people who run to control body temperature. Some said it could have been for medical reasons like a hernia or hysterectomy. I think Jim speculated it could have been worn to holster a knife. What are your thoughts about Kiao's corset, Bob? I really don't know. I think that uh, a lot of these posts are correct, that there are a lot of different reasons why Kiao could have been wearing that corset. Jim's theory that it may have been used to either holster the knife or protect Kiao's skin against the blade of the knife if it was in like a pocket does make some sense, but so do all the others. So as far as I'm concerned, the corset is still a mystery, at least to me. Jamie on Twitter asks, did anyone ever find who was in the white car? No one ever actually found the individual that was driving the white car, but we do have a few leads, and we'll be getting into those next week. I'm still trying to chase all this down. Jennifer Dion on Truth and Justice podcast fan page says, Okay, so no spoilers, Bob, but I've been curious for a while now. Do you have a theory on an alternate suspect yet? I was wondering if in your investigation so far, you have someone else in mind. At this point, I don't have any particular suspect in mind. I do have a few people of interest that are on my radar right now, but I'm a long ways away from getting to where I could consider them a suspect. Basically what's going on is I have a couple of leads and a couple of names that I think may fit the profile and may fit the crime, 
but I haven't been able to track these people down or make contact with them yet. But that is definitely something we're working on. But as of right now, no, I do not have a particular alternate suspect. What I have now is an alternate profile of an offender. The type of person that we may be looking for, along with some other investigatory leads that might tie in with those people. But as soon as we have a suspect, you'll all be the first to know. We have another email from Juliana. Juliana asks, do you know if any reward was paid out, Crime Stoppers or Keow's husband, and if Troy and or Carol's financial situation has drastically changed for the better since Jesse's arrest and conviction? Right now, we do not know if either of those rewards were paid out. The Crime Stoppers reward should have been paid out because Detective Watts said that it was a Crime Stoppers tip that led him to Troy Eldridge who led him to Jesse, and Crime Stoppers tips are paid out upon arrest or indictment. So that one should have been paid out. We actually have an open records request in right now with Crime Stoppers to see what kind of information we can get about that. But as far as Kenneth Gove's reward money, we don't know if that was paid out. And Kenneth is deceased, and Kirby said that he does not know if it was ever paid out. Regarding Troy and Carol, first of all, I don't think that any of these rewards would be life-changing. You know, Crime Stoppers is typically like a $1,000 or a $2,000 reward. Kenneth Gove's reward was $10,000. But it's not life-changing type money that's going to change your life 26 years later after the fact. With ten dollars or $12,000, you could maybe pay off some debt, maybe buy a new car, but then you'd be right back to business as usual. Okay, listener Joanna Rodriguez writes us in an email saying, It struck me as strange that Jesse would still be in contact with his brother after he was in jail. Do you know the nature of the letters that they exchanged and what they discussed or talked about? Also, she wants to know, if this case was taken to court again, could Jim Clemente possibly be available as an expert witness? I think that the contact between Troy and Jesse started with Jesse writing Troy letters, asking him why he did what he did, and probably asking him to tell the truth. Jesse did tell me that later he would receive letters from Troy that he described as letters that you would typically get from your brother when you were in prison, but Troy completely avoided the topic of his testimony that put Jesse away. Jesse actually said it was really strange because he would send him a letter back and ask him about his testimony, and Troy would write him a letter back as if Jesse never asked him the question. But they have not been in contact now for, I think, eight or nine years. And to answer your second question, if this were to go back to trial or even to a hearing, Jim Clemente would be the exact type of witnesses that we'd want to call in as an expert. You know, Jim's not just a podcaster and a TV writer. He actually does testify on a regular basis as an expert witness when he's profiling cases. And last, we have an email here from listener Christine Back. She writes, Do you know how much blood was on the shirt Jesse was supposedly wearing at the time of the crime? It sounded like from an earlier description that it was just a spot or a couple spots of blood. Looking at this as most likely a case where Kia fought her attacker and the attacker was struggling to get her under control, I have to believe that there would be a lot of blood left on the person responsible for the attack and not just a spot or two. So Troy's description of the bloody shirt uh, kind of evolved a little bit between his different statements, but he described the shirts as having blood spatters all over it and blood being soaked in in a few places. The impression that I got from reading all of his statements was that there was quite a bit of blood on Jesse's shirt. But regarding how much blood would be on the offender shirt, that's up for debate, but I would not expect, as I've said in a previous episode, there to be much blood at all on the shirt. First of all, we have the medical examiner's testimony that says that she would not expect these wounds to bleed very much at all. We have Danny Stanbury's statement, the man who found the body, who said that he didn't notice any blood on her other than on her mouth and a little bit on her face. Also, we have the fact that there was a blanket thrown over Kiao, and when the blanket was removed, there was very little blood on the blanket that was directly touching her skin. 
So I think that any blood that would have gotten onto the offender may have been cast off from the knife after it was pulled out of her. But again, that wouldn't be a lot of blood because of the fact that the skin would kind of clean the blade, the undershirt, and the jacket would clean the blade as it comes off. So trying to determine how much blood would be on a shirt and comparing it to Troy's multiple stories about the blood that was on the shirt that he saw is, like Sarah Koenig said in Serial, it's like trying to plot the course of someone's dream. There's just too many unknowns and too many different versions of the story. Okay, that's going to do it for social media this week. Thanks again, everyone, for your thoughts and theories. Now let's take a quick break to hear from this week's sponsor, and we'll get right into the voicemails. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. All right, Bob, our first voicemail is from Larissa from Idaho. Hi, Bob. This is Larissa from Idaho. I just finished listening to um, Jim's analysis. I thought it was very interesting. It fits along with what you said really well. Um, and it all makes a lot of sense. I, I think the Cadillac um, aspect is an interesting thing to consider as well. But there's one thing that I can't quite wrap my head around. Um, you know, regardless of if the, the car was involved or not, Jim and you believe that um, there was multiple locations. Even if, you know, if they attacked her and she ran a few hundred yards or, or if, you know, that she did end up in the car at some point. What I cannot fathom is how, when her body was found, did she still have that knife in her hand? If she is fighting, you know, if it's such a dynamic scene and she's curling up and defending herself, how does she not lose that knife? Or how do they not take that knife away from her, especially if, you know, it's it's a long battle? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm really curious on your thoughts on that because that is the one thing that just does not make sense to me. But I just wanted to say thank you for your work. I This season has been amazing, and I'm looking forward to seeing what else you have to unfold for us. Thanks, Bob. Okay, thanks for that voicemail, Larissa. And I think there's a couple of possibilities with the knife. One possibility is that she did actually get a piece of her attacker, and that's actually what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping at some point we can send that knife in for DNA, and we might find the killer's blood on the knife. But as far as how she was still holding on to it, again, I think this fits well with there being multiple attackers. Imagine if once they finally catch her and all the stabbing starts, Kiao's on the ground. I think that it's possible that one offender could have been holding her wrist or holding her arm to keep her from stabbing them with the knife. Now, this could be done with one person as well, but I think that the most likely scenario is that the killer was holding her arm or holding her hand away from them trying to keep her from stabbing them with the knife throughout the entire attack. All right, this next voicemail comes from Loki and Karina in Australia. Hey, Bob, it's Loki and Karina at Texas Bypass from Melbourne. We're loving the new season, and we just wanted to ask you a quick few questions. One, were the locks ever changed? Did Kenneth know the keys were missing? If he did, you'd think that he would get the locks changed as the killer may have access to his house. We also have a bit of a far-fetched thought, but we thought we'd throw it out there. Could it be possible that the funeral for Kiao was within the 11 days that the keys were found? 
Could the stiller, could the killer or her stalker have gone back to the house to retrieve a trophy or an item of hers to keep? We were thinking that if he had an obsession and didn't originally want to harm her, he would have had the opportunity to take something of hers. Was the house ever searched by the police? And if so, did anything come up? And we also wanted to know if the police ever looked into any of Kia's close family members. We've also been listening to Undisclosed, um, and in Baltimore, the African-Americans don't have a lot of trust in the police. Could it be possible that an African-American found the keys and didn't feel comfortable handing them to the police? Was there a high African-American presence within the area? Bye. Bye. All right, ladies, there's a lot of questions in there, so I'll try to break them down one by one. We don't know if the locks were ever changed. It's never addressed in any of the reports. Kenneth did go through the house for the police to see if anything was stolen, and there was nothing stolen from the house. And in fact, we know that she actually had a jewelry box that was still full of jewelry, and the exact necklace that Kenneth was looking for was still in the box, the one that she normally wore. So I don't think anyone broke into the house. I don't know when the exact date of the funeral was at this point, but I also don't think this is the type of crime where someone would break into her house to take a trophy. I don't think we're looking at like a serial killer or psychopath type of person here. And as far as uh, an African-American possibly being afraid of the police, I think that any minority or anyone that has a lot of involvement with the police wouldn't be very likely to go to the police with anything. And I think we saw this with uh, Judy Gonzalez and Jesse James Swindell. In Detective Watts's notes a few years later, it's pointed out that Judy Gonzalez's son actually had some run-ins with the law, and that's why she waited so long to go to them with the information about the white Camaro. She had a general fear of police, and I think that is common, and I think that could be the reason why we had such a delay in reporting there, and I think that could possibly tie into why the keys got returned to the house. Not necessarily that it was an African-American, but someone might have picked them up and didn't want to go to the police, so they just delivered them directly to the house. I think that's at least a possibility. This next voicemail is from Kimberly from Houston. Hi, Bob and Mike. My name is Kimberly, and I'm from Houston, Texas. My question is, did anyone ever check any uh, nearby hospital records after Kiao's stabbing? If she had a knife, did she possibly get a stab in herself, making uh, whoever attacked her go to the hospital to get care? Thank you. Bye. All right, Kimberly, that's a really good question, and again, I don't have the answer to it. There's no notations in the reports from any of the police officers that they ever checked with local hospitals, and I think that would have been smart because I think it's very likely that one of the attackers would have been cut in the attack, either that Keogh got a piece of them or, again, remember we had that stab wound to the sternum. There was a lot of force behind that stab wound in a downward motion that hit solid bone and stopped the knife. And as you heard Jim Clemente point out, it's very likely the killer's hand could have slipped down over the blade, and that could have caused a gash deep enough that the offender would have needed stitches on their hand. So it'd be nice if that had been done. I don't know if it ever was. All right, this next voicemail comes from Sandy in South Carolina. Hey, guys, it's Sandy in South Carolina. Um, Just finished listening to episode 305. It was awesome. Jim Clemente rocks. I just want to say I think you two guys make a great great team um so what i'm calling about um today is the eyewitness that saw the car and there was speculation that keow got it wrong i kind of seem to think it's the other way around i think the lady with the 13 year old nephew got it wrong and and here's why um keow was walking the car actually stopped so they're at a slower pace 
you know, she's going to get a really good look at the emblem to tell her husband. And the Cadillac emblem is pretty recognizable, um, I think. The other lady, I just feel like she was further away that, you know, I think if these guys would have seen her, they may have altered what they were doing for fear that they would have been, you know, caught. So I don't really think they got a good look at her, and so therefore I don't think she got a really good look at them as far as the details of what kind of car it was. I think she may not have reported quite so soon afterwards out of fear that she's, you know, maybe possibly putting a 13-year-old on the stand to have to testify to what he saw, you know, fear that they could know that she saw them and repercussions of them coming after her. And two, if she didn't tell her sister, we don't know what she told her sister. Did she tell her sister what kind of car it was or did that come later? So over time, she could have forgot what kind of car it was. Also, I think the Cadillac makes more sense because you said, you know, putting somebody in the back of a Camaro is not really, there's not a lot of room back there. There's not a lot of space. And with the seats the way they were, so Cadillac definitely has more room to do something of the sexual nature that we may think may have been a, a motive for them. Anyway, I, I kind of think maybe it's the other way around. That's just my thinking. You know, and two, I look at what she came up with, saying that she saw these guys trying to put a woman in a car. What's the motive of coming up with that story? I mean, what purpose does that serve for her? Plus, again, putting her 13-year-old nephew in jeopardy of having to, to testify and go through, you know, what he would have to go through. Why would, what would, why would somebody make that up? I just, I don't, I don't get that. So that's a big question for me, too. So anyway, those are just my thoughts on 305. I, uh, I love the episode. Again, I think you guys rock. Thanks for everything you do. These are some really good points about the white Camaro. I will say, though, that I think that maybe Judy Gonzalez might not have had it right about the car. But Jesse James Swindell remembered something specifically about the car. One thing that he said that he remembered absolutely seeing was that the car said Z28 on the side. This is a very specific memory. So if we're looking at trying to read what kind of car it was or what type of emblem was on the hood, that could leave some room for question. But Jesse Swindell was positive that he remembered seeing that Z28. And there's also a couple of other things that he remembered that we'll be discussing in the next week or two that tell me that his memory of the situation was actually pretty darn vivid. So I think that Jesse's account of the car that he saw is probably pretty close to spot on. And I also agree with you that it would seem pretty unlikely that he would go out of his way to lie about that. I just don't see the motive. I mean, possibly the reward, but that's about it as far as motive. But really good point, Sandy. Thanks for calling in. Okay, and our last voicemail is from Carrie from Indiana. Hi, this is Carrie from Indiana. I was just curious, is there any report of grass stains on Kiel's clothes? that would um, support what Jim Clemente, what his theory of the attack was. Thanks. We don't have any photos of the clothes, but what we do have is in Detective Don Watts' notes, he says that he examined the clothes and didn't notice any tears or drag marks. However, he did indicate that there were some grass stains. So I think that that does support Jim's theory that there was a lot of motion on the ground. It also tells us that Kia wasn't killed and then dragged there as like a body dump. Really good question, Carrie. Thanks for calling in. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks, everybody, for your engagement. And make sure that you tune in to Sunday's episode, where we'll be breaking down the evolution of Troy Eldridge's testimonies. We start with his very first statement to the police in 1991, 
all the way through to what he had to say to me just two weeks ago when I visited him in Texas. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Mike Bussing is our executive producer. Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And thanks to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating and maintaining our website. Also want to thank our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Remember, after every week's main episode, you can send your thoughts, theories, and ideas into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can post your thoughts or questions on our Facebook page, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, or on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. Or a great place to interact with us is on Twitter, at TruthJusticePod. And for three days after every episode, you can call 269-224-2833 to leave us a voicemail with your thoughts, theories, and ideas. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Answer her other, and answer, and answer Jan's other question. Beth Zelmer King posts, "We know Kiao's husband." Ugh. Beth Zelmer King posts, "We know Kiao's husband was at work at the." I'm also curious to know if, I'm also curious to know if he moved one. I'm also curious to know if he moved on quickly after Kiao's death. The same close friend that I spoke with, the same friend, the same close friend that I spoke with, who was very close friends with both Kiao and Kenneth. Joe Allen posts, "Does anyone else think that the time at does anyone else think that the time of day that this crime was committed is interesting? Like, you wrote that. <laughs> no, no, it's just, it's literally just like words to mouth. The brain to the mouth, there's a connection error. Well, then we also have the reports of some, and then we couple that with the fact that we have, re- no one ever, no one actually, what was the question? Did anybody, what? Okay. They eliminate waste by only producing what a one, let me calm down and read ahead. They eliminate waste by only producing what is wanted by their customers. In the core collection, you can order items like their so- <laughs> In the You said you could do it. You said you could soul, do it. Right, soul. Soul. Right. In the core collection, you can order items like their soul tank top, the fit me racker <laughs> racer. Okay. Or their popular Omni yoga leggings. Why the big space there? Well, because I want people to know they're different than the other yoga leggings. That's why you said Omni. <laughs>